Hey, this is Elias Dummer, and you are listening to the Practical Worship Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Practical Worship Podcast. I'm Dave Dolphin, and this show is designed to help you lead a worship band and be a leader of people. And we release a new episode on the first Friday of every single month. So if you haven't already, tap that subscribe button on whatever app you're using to listen to your podcast on, and you'll never miss another one. I appreciate you being here with me, and this is episode number 16, and our guest this time is Elias Dummer. He's the director of worship at the Village Church in the Nashville area, but you probably know him better as the frontman of the Canadian group, The City Harmonic. They had that song Manifesto uh, several years back, and now he's just released a solo project and has a song on the radio called Enough, which just surpassed a million streams on Spotify. In this conversation, we talk about how he discovered his calling as a worship leader and how that played out in various ways, like in the local church. Church in Ontario, Canada, to a band that played internationally with members from all kinds of different denominations, to present day, where he's a part of a church plant in the Nashville area and writing songs as a solo artist. And then there are moments as we talk where he is brutally honest, and I think you'll appreciate his openness and honesty in this conversation. But first, the product of the month is the lighting software app, My DMX, and the USB interface from American. DJ. When I first got to the church that I'm at right now, the the lighting situation was this really kind of proprietary system that was on the wall. I had a few faders, a few scenes that you could put in there. It was it was pretty cheaply made and original to the building back in 2000. And so we knew we needed to pull that out and we wanted to upgrade to something like Jan's Vista, which is actually now owned by Chroma Q. So in the middle, in the meantime, while we were trying to raise the funds to actually get to Vista, we found in the youth department that they had an extra one of these little MyDMX boxes. And so we thought, well, this would be a nice little temporary thing that will hold us over for a few months from from the old way of this little panel on the wall to going full-blown to something like a Jans Vista. Well, almost a year later, we are still running this software by American DJ. We find it very easy to program. We have various scenes set up for the songs and the different elements in, that are within the service. We've recently gotten into running some small effects. Uh, we have this back wall with six of the Chave color bars, and each of those color bars, you can actually zone out to be three separate lights. And so you have 18 different zones of color, and then you drop a small effect on it, and you can kind of create a little bit of movement on the back wall as if we had a moving background and a projector on this back wall. We're also beginning to send MIDI cues from ProPresenter, so when you hit a certain slide on ProPresenter, that sends a MIDI note over the net network that the software receives and then it changes the queue. And so instead of having two people running ProPresenter and lights, you can actually have one person. They tap one button and it changes the entire scene across the entire auditorium. The software itself is free. The device is about $300. Compare that to Vista, which is about a $1,500 investment just to start. Now, Vista is going to get us into the game of some presets and also having a control server. So it's still our end goal as far as our final destination with our lighting setup. But what was supposed to be a temporary situation in our auditorium has worked really, really well. And so as if you're looking for that next step with your lights, I know that sometimes American DJ kind of gets a bad rap in terms of like that name. It's the same thing like Behringer, but we have found this software and this device to really hold up well and be amazingly flexible more than we ever thought when we originally started down this road. I'll put a link to the MyDMX USB interface and the lighting software in the show notes. And as we mention things throughout the episode, we'll put links to those things as well in the show notes. Just go to practicalworshipblog.com slash podcast 16. And now here's my conversation with Elias Dummer. Elias Dummer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. Pumped to be here. Are you are you hanging out? Are you in Nashville right now? I am. I am in my office slash studio 
in Brentwood, actually, just outside Nashville. Because you're not originally from Nashville. You're actually from, from Ontario, Canada. Yeah. So how long, have, how long have you been here in the States? Seven years. So we moved a um, few years after City Harmonic started touring like crazy. Uh, mostly moved to try to have more time at home. We were just having a heck of a time getting across the border every weekend. And so was was it was there a culture shock? Like you know, spending all that time in Canada. And, and I know you were you know you were close enough to like New York and things like that. Like if you wanted to jump across the you know the border, it wasn't hard for you to do. But like right. when you came into Nashville, was like was there things that were like oh my gosh, I can't believe they do this or did, were you able to slip into the culture pretty easily well by the time i moved i had been traveling the states or so i was spending more than half the year in the states anyway um so maybe not by then i mean there are definite cultural differences and value differences like what well canadians are i mean the the cliche is that canadians are polite and deferential um and i think that's probably true uh except it's like in the South, they have their own ways of doing things too. So it, it's funny. I mean, the Canadian apology, for example, right? Everyone, uh, I often joke that people don't realize that Canadians are supremely passive aggressive, probably topped only by the Brits. And so like, we you know when a Canadian says, sorry, it's, it's, it's complicated because it is genuine. They're being deferential, but they're also likely apologizing to you for you. Oh, so it's it's unlike the bless your heart where it's like, oh, bless your heart has this kind of like, oh, I'm doing better than you are. Sorry is like, um, this is an awkward situation. Why have you done this? Why are you doing this to me? I'm sorry for you. Yeah, exactly. So it, it kind of is a – I mean there's a lot more to it than that. Canada in general is a lot more uh, – hmm, I think how to put it. I think Canadians are, are, are a little bit more – broad-minded, I guess, or open to the idea that a whole bunch of different types of people can coexist in a place. Okay. I think that that's a harder conversation to have in the States than it is in Canada because it's sort of necessary in Canada. Especially in the South, too. Yeah, it's just a different conversation. So not to say that it's necessary. I mean, yeah, Canadians are generally a little bit more inclusive and are Political conversations are, or at least they used to be. It's probably more now. It's a bit more this way, but um, a lot less binary. Just yeah. because it was, we didn't have a two-party system and still don't. So it just kind of changed a fair bit. This is the one thing I know about Canada is that you guys have the craziest road signs I have ever seen. The French and English is that what you mean? No, like like you guys have symbols I've never seen before. Here's so here's a story. So my wife's family live uh, in the North Dakota area, uh-huh. and so sometimes it's cheaper just to fly into Winnipeg yeah. and then drive into North Dakota versus like Minot or something like that. And you know, and she's driving through, her brother's driving her through, and like there's some sign with like you know a road and a house, and I'm walking. Water. And I'm like, what are you trying to tell me? Yeah, I have no idea. That's hilarious. There's now signs in, uh, there are now signs in Ontario for turtles, turtle crossing. See, this is what I'm talking about. <laughs> I guess it must be a problem. Turtle, turtle accidents. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Elias, I appreciate you coming on on the show. And uh, and as 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 you know, we're both worship leaders and uh, and have the opportunity to to lead in the areas that we do. You've kind of had this unique story, and you know, with everything going on with the City Harmonic, and now you know, church planning in Nashville, and being on your own. So I kind of wanted to like unpack that story a little bit as a worship leader, you know, someone who was called to do this in the unique situations that that you were in, you know, and so we can go back to, you know, the City Harmonic, but even before then, I would imagine there was a moment where, you know, you were in worship ministry and leading worship. Like, yeah. what did that call look like in your life when you realized, okay, this is something I might do for the rest of my life. I was designed for this. Yeah, totally. So I started leading, I, I went to this small Baptist church in Hamilton, which it doesn't mean it not Southern Baptist, just kind of really broadly small E evangelical church, um, part of what's called the CBOQ at the time. Um, and I, when I was 13 years old, the worship leader at our church guy named Paul played guitar and there was a lady named Patty who played keys and that was it. It was really, they just had a couple people. They got me to start playing alongside him. And then if, with, within a short period of time, I was playing, you know, 14 years old leading worship at our church. 
with another adult and then started to lead at youth at the same time. So, but that was always in the back of my mind. That was never like a thing I thought of in any professional sense. It was just sort of the thing you do and started to do that. I was in a band at the time, was in like a ska band that would go and play. We would play these ridiculous club shows and, you know, pack them out and have a lot of fun and just all the antics that come along with that. And, you know, so like any, I, I, I'm kind of of the opinion that every musician probably needs to be heckled at some point in their life. <laughs> Cause I think it's a great skill. It's good for them <laughs> to, to manage a heckler. Um, but, but anyway, so it really wasn't until I was kind of 17 or 18, um, which is 20 years ago, uh, that I decided, you know, I, I think God's really, calling me to do this. I had started to write worship songs and sing them at youth group and church, and the church was really responding. Um, and so I quit my band and was at Fresh Wind Conference in Toronto at Toronto Airport, and Tim Hughes was leading. And I was just a kid in youth group, uh, and I thought, I'm going to ask him a question, because I had been really wrestling with a lot of the conversations around whether or not a worship leader writing their own songs should promote their own music. I mean, that was kind of, should I be self-promotional? What should I do? Right. So I approached Tim and I said, Hey man, if you have a few minutes, I'd love to ask you a couple questions. And he said, sure. Great. I, I've gone to a session now, but talk to me later. So we did, we met up and I said, Hey man, I, uh, I want to do this. I also don't want to be weird about it. I don't, you know, I want to kind of be faithful to, to God in it. And he said, well, here's my advice. He's admittedly, um, he said, I mean, admittedly I was in Mike Pilavachi's youth group, but nevertheless, I thought I'm not going to promote myself in doing this. I'm going to write the songs and be faithful to what's in front of me. If that's stacking chairs or writing songs or whatever, I'm going to go out and do that. And if God's got more for it, then great. Well, and for him, of course, that led to here I am to worship and right. the rest of his life. Um, so I thought, okay, yeah, that seems like good advice. And so I went back to my youth group and I did that. I was just led worship at my youth group, led worship at my church, would play the odd convention or conference in the area. And organically that started to lead to like working with other youth pastors in the city, um, really thinking through what would it look like for us to Hamilton, bit of backstory, my hometown, uh, was pretty rough. I mean, we had a steel industry that fell apart and we were kind of the armpit of Canada's joke or the butt of Canada's joke. Um, and so really Hamilton needed help. And so there were churches that had started to work together and myself and my youth pastor and a group of youth pastors and other worship leaders started to say, Hey, what would it look like for us to pray together and work together. And eventually that evolved into this thing called cross culture where we would kind of worship in the morning, really kumbaya acoustic guitar. Then we'd organized, uh, sending out five, 600 students out to all these different nonprofits around the city and kind of really just trying to say, Hey, look, this is obviously about more than singing. This has to be tied to justice and mission. And if we're in this city, singing these songs and not doing something about the reality of the world people live in, then we're liars. And so we kind of spent all day, people would go out and serve all day and we'd come back together at night and kind of in, in the midst of this movement of a whole bunch of churches working together. Um, and so that house band of that evolved in one way or another into the city harmonic. So how did that transition happen? Like, you know, you, you got all these different uh, musicians from different churches and these people coming together and you're the house band for this. Like, where was the pivot point in that? Well, and it was a few years. So like I, when I got married to my wife, I was 20. Um, I back to, to kind of tie close full circle, the uh, Tim Hughes story, I guess. Um, I had written a song for my wife and played it for her at our reception and it was on the wedding video. Well, my youth pastor played that wedding video for a guy named Steve Prendergast, who was a pretty big deal in the music industry. And he was over at that point. At, I think he was at live nation working on like the Jay Z deal or something. Okay. So it was like, maybe my details or time is fuzzy. I'm not sure, but, but that's, he, he kind of came along and said, Hey, what do you want to do? Do you want to, it wasn't a worship song, of course. It was a love song for my wife. Um, and he just said, hey, do you want to make music? 
he, he was friends with the Jonas brothers and just this kind of like, Hey, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, I really feel called to be a worship leader. And he said, okay. So he made some phone calls and this was when I was 20 years old and they made a publishing company and a management company. And I was the first signing. And so that's, I had been, by the time city harmonic started to talk to record labels, for example, um, I started to think of this as anything other than a thing we do in our hometown, um, coming out of our involvement in churches. We were all involved in our churches. Um, seven years had passed. So it's, it's, it's not as though this thing kind of happened overnight. It was for us, it was just putting one foot in front of the other for a long time. And then I don't want to under, I don't want to over spiritualize it either. The reality is that the guy that had signed my publishing deal, a guy named Steve Nicole, sold his music distribution company to David C. Cook, who made a record label out of a record. They had bought Kingsway UK years earlier, and they said, we want to start a North American imprint. They put him in charge of it, and he was already involved in the songs I was writing. Well, it just seems like it's a, it's a situation where you were just doing what was right in front of you. Mm-hmm. You were, you know, God had put something in front of you and you're just, you're just doing the thing. And as you're running that race, here come these things alongside of you and these relationships, you know, doesn't seem like there was a whole lot of you reaching out and making phone calls and not to say that that was necessarily bad, but you're just doing whatever, what was right in front of you. And then these things started coming alongside. In terms of those early relationships, absolutely. Um, I was being intentional. I was taking every opportunity I could. I was investing in other worship leaders and myself a lot. Um, I've always kind of, I had someone tell me early on in ministry that if you're not working yourself out of a job, you're not doing your job. Yeah. No matter, no matter what your job description says. Um, and I've always thought that. So even in the church plant where I am now, I, we started three years ago. I was the only one leading worship for the first few months. Now I'm one of six. And I lead every six weeks and I'm on staff. So it's like it, I, to me, that's a healthy, that's a healthy thing, you know? And, and it really has, it has been at least early on about putting one foot in front of the other and just trying to be faithful. How are you growing as a, as a worship leader? I would imagine, you know, just the opportunities that the City Harmonic had, just, you know, you playing, you know, large shows and international and all these different things. Like, it's 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 got similarities and it's got differences in terms of just what you were doing also in the local church. So as, as God was using that and you have all these different opportunities to do the things that you were doing, how do you feel like God was using that time to help you grow mm-hmm. as that calling that you had as a worship leader? Well, I mean, I grew up in a small church, fewer than 150 people on a Sunday. Um, And so I've always seen a pretty stark con. I don't think, I know people will say it's the same. I don't think that leading a small church of people that you know is the same as a ticketed event or leading worship at a conference. I just don't think you can go into those two places with the same expectations. I don't think it's realistic to, to do so. Because in a small situation with people you know, your authority is earned as relational equity. If there's any trust there, it's not based on some idea of you. It's based on who you actually are. Right. So it's a, it's a different set of circumstances. Nobody who shows up to see the City Harmonic in 99% of the people in the room who showed up to see the city harmonic because they heard manifesto on the radio or at passion, they're not coming to us and going, I know everything about your life. I know who you are. I know your mom. Here I am. That's not what's happening. Well, and there's also, there's, you know, there's, it's, you know, something like, you know, whether it's a passion event or a big concert or, or whatever, it's such a large venue. And, you know, even just your connection with people, you know, in the room. It's different. Yeah. I mean, you're like, you know, a hundred feet away from people versus being in a church of 300 and yep. you know, they're right in front of you and they can, you know, hobnob with you like after the, the service and just totally. you know, kind of connect with you. So, yeah, I could totally see those being different. Yeah, they're, they're really different. And so for City Harmonic, we knew going in that musically what we wanted to do was of a certain scale and style. We, want, we, we were explicitly trying to be creative. I mean, that was kind of our, we want to shake things up a bit. That was kind of our goal. And so we knew that our live events were going to have to be like, maybe, maybe a lot like Delirious with a kind of a blurry line between performance and, and honestly, out of a conviction that that debate about performance and worship is maybe a bit of a false debate. Unpack that for a second. 
Yeah. Um, so for me, one of my driving convictions, and it's, it's what drove cross culture, the kind of worship and mission event that we started back in Hamilton is that Christianity as a whole, our faith and our, our worship, everything is ultimately holistic. It is not a compartmentalized spiritual exercise. It is our whole life. So the idea that we can get in front of people, lead them well by earning their trust and following the spirit in this sort of a pseudo pastoral role at the front of a room, the idea that that can be devoid of some play acting is nonsense as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I did a a video on YouTube about a year or so ago uh, about just this idea of, of, you know, are we performing when it comes to, to leading worship and just the negative connotations that come with that word of, mm-hmm. well, if I'm performing, it's one, I'm trying to bring all the attention on myself and also I'm trying to be something that I'm not. And it's like, well, no, because like, for example, you know, let's take an episode of the Big Bang Theory. Yes, you got the main actors and they're acting and we would say that they're performing. But what about, about that guy that's in the back yeah. that's just sitting there eating his lunch in the scene? Is his is, is he performing? Yeah, he totally is. But his job is to actually reflect attention yep, totally. from himself. And, you know, you want your body language and things like that to to be, you know, in line with what you're singing. Yep. And so you might need to, I'm not saying that as a worship leader, you, you, you be something that you're not. Everyone doesn't have to jump around like it's a gateway worship video. You know, you be you, but you might need to be, you know, uh, you know, you might need to stretch a little bit what's your comfort zone. Or be a version of yourself. I think the thing is, like, we do have a role to play, and it is a healthy role. And on top of that, I think, like, it's a strange definition of authenticity if what we mean by it is that we are the only person in the room who's entitled to do only exactly what we feel like doing. Yeah. That is a really weird... That's, that's not authenticity. That's, like egotism on out of control. Yeah, because the, the other, other part you want to think about is that, uh, you know, you're there to serve the people. And so there are certain things that you may say or not say or songs you might do or not do that you're doing it because of the people you're trying to serve as a pastor, not necessarily because it's what you want to do. Right. And so, so much of that, I mean, the average person coming in the room has probably just fought with their kids to get into church. They've had all kinds of things going on. And your first goal is to help them be in the space. And that requires trust, you know? And so I was always starkly aware of that and and contrasting the city harmonic to a small church environment or a big conference to a small church environment, how you cross that line, how you break the fifth wall, if you will, is very different. If you go up at the front of a 300 person room of people who know your mom, you know, and you're like, Hey everybody, let's go. Yeah. Right at the gate. You look foolish, right? You're not, you don't help them enter a fantasy. You just look like you're in one. Right. But if I'm in a big room and I'm wearing a British colonel's jacket and I'm like singing this song in front of 10,000 people and I don't do that, then I'm just telling everyone I don't know why I'm here. So there's a sense of like recognizing a practical social authority that is healthy and normal. And if we pretend it's not there, then we make the gap between stage or platform and congregation bigger, not smaller, because it becomes the elephant in the room. Yeah. So I th- I think we name those things. We say, okay, this is a big room. I-, I serve the room best by breaking the fifth wall. Maybe that starts by getting everyone's wiggles out with a few big thumpers and then waiting for that moment where everyone's on the same page. And then once you're there, that's the space you live in. And, and so that was always our mentality with, with the city harmonic was we're going to go out and we're honestly for a couple songs going to like prayerfully, and this is going to sound bizarre, but prayerfully put on a great rock show of worship songs for a few minutes. Cause we had people from all kinds of different walks coming together. Some folks who grew up in say a Methodist church that they've never sung a modern chorus and folks who were, you know, it had, they were listening to the new Hillsong record on the way there. And so you've got this kind of really big contrast. And our goal was always, how do we get all these different people from different denominations and different traditional experiences of worship on the same page? Well, that's even how the City Harmonic started. Yep. I mean, you got a bunch of people from different denominations and different areas that came together. You know, it's even implied in the name. 
Totally. Yeah, that was exactly what it was. So, I mean, we, we came from different churches, different denominations. We'd worked together for years, but we didn't baptize the same way for Pete's sake, you know? So it's sort of like we had some figuring out to do. And I, I think that that is in actuality, the modern reality of most churches. We can no longer take for granted that everyone darkening the door of our church has a shared Christian experience. Well, and you you said you grew up in a Baptist church, and you know, and I serve uh, Baptist churches, and we, the Baptists can't even decide what they believe. Yeah, well, and, and I, I would. It's funny. I mean, I call it Baptist. It was a Baptist church. I, by any American definition, the way that it's organized here, it's, it wasn't. I had an Anglican youth pastor, and my mom's Anglican. So I, I it, there's this, and we were in the shadow of Toronto Airport. Yeah. So there's, there was, you know, in the nineties, that was such a huge factor you couldn't ignore. So I'm like a charismatic Anglican who went to a Baptist church. It's like, so now I've planted a Methodist church and it all kind of makes sense. (laughs) It's almost come full circle. Yeah, exactly. When you were with the city harmonic, were you intentionally writing songs for the church or were, you know, were you doing something different? And then the songs happened to find their way in the church. Intentionally, always intentionally. Uh, When I came up, and probably similar to you, when I came up, the norm was not to be using stems or tracks in church. In fact, that would have sounded absolutely ridiculous. Um, And so when I was on staff at a church, uh, we were not anything. We we weren't using click or tracks or anything. We would hear a song and then we would interpret that song. I never in my entire career thought people just play the song the way it is, not even with volunteers. And not to say that that's necessarily bad. I get that that's what a lot of churches do, practically speaking. But it was just not something I ever did. And maybe I was just blessed with musicians who didn't want to do that. They wanted to interpret. And so when we made City Harmonic Records, we made records we wanted to listen to of songs we wanted to sing. We weren't practically saying, we're going to make a record that makes people want to sing these songs this way in their church. Gotcha. And maybe that was a bad decision. I don't know. But but it, I think it ha- it played a role in how people interpreted and understood the songs for sure. Well, it definitely has a, a little bit of an experimental feel to it. Like it like you you could definitely tell like what boundaries can we push and not to be rebellious, but like how can we do something different? Um, that is going to serve people, not necessarily different for the sake of like, we're just going to be different. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, we weren't out to be weird. That wasn't the goal. It was more like, hey, we want to make records of worship songs or maybe even songs for discipleship if people can't see how to play them in their in their Sunday setting. Um, songs that are helpful for people. I mean, I've always been really big on taking complicated ideas, whether it be theological or philosophical or scientific and figuring out, okay, how do I translate this? How do I make this make sense to a person who now has to sing it or listen to it and get where I'm going? And so lyrically, we were always, and I've continued this with my own songs, although I'm being a lot more intentional to try to write songs that are congregational um, now. But I think with City Harmonic as well, we were always trying to kind of make songs like an onion, where it makes sense one way if you listen to it, and then if you take a good look at it, there's another layer and another layer. And I've always been drawn to that stuff, and and I love doing that as a means of translating complicated ideas. So yeah, well, you're approaching it pastorally. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. the same thing when you have you know a, a pastor or communicator, someone get on stage trying to help you lead through an idea within the. Bible, uh, at the end of the day, you're trying to help someone to understand that biblical truth, but the way that you lead them and say, okay, well, A is to B and B is to C, and did you think about D, you know, getting people to to think about some things, and so at the end of it, it's like, I never thought of it that way. Totally. And you're not coming up with, like, new truth. What you're doing is you're trying to help people to understand the truth and, and do so in a way, it's like, did, but have you thought about this and how it applies to this? Yep, totally. And I mean, the Christian faith is filled with paradoxes. And so if we start to act as if there aren't complicated, I mean, the Trinity alone, right? Yeah. So we've we've got some crazy things that resonate deeply with us as things that are true. And so we have to unpack those things and we have to find unique ways of of talking about them in order that we can chew on them a bit more and turn the diamond and see that new shade of light. How did you know it was time for a new chapter? Oh, man. Um, Well, Eric, we were a four-piece band. 
And even though we spent a lot of that band with one member of the band fighting leukemia, so for the, there was a guy named Steve who played bass for us, good friend. He played as many shows as Eric ever did. Um, but Eric was like, you know what? I can't travel anymore, and I want to focus on church planting. And we spent the better part of late 2015 working with 17 cities across the United States. We'd get these pastors together and do these pastoral roundtables um, where we would talk about trying to really say, what does it look like? So when we first started the City Harmonic, that movement of churches working together, which came to be known as True City, it's like 20, 30 churches working together, um, they actually commissioned us. We were invited up at the conference at the one year. They laid hands on us. Like there's a picture of like 30 pastors laying their hands on us. It's the most bizarre thing. Um, so they sent us out and to use music to do that. And 2015 came around. We were working on the record We Are, and we were like, we really want to help this sort of thing to happen other places. Um, and so we did, we spent a lot of that year doing that and working with local pastors and churches that way. There was a moment on that tour where we, we had already been to a dozen cities or so and had seen just these incredible conversations and seen these pastors connect that had never connected and decide to work together missionally. And we were just like, man, this feels so consequential, but the tour was a commercial failure. And so we were like, we're losing our shirts, but doing kingdom work. And it was sort of this moment, I think Eric said, I mean, if this tour is the thing that breaks us, and it wasn't really, but if this tour is the thing that breaks us, great. Like it's worth it, worth every minute, worth every penny. And he was totally right. And it wasn't the tour that broke us, but it did sort of give Eric the sense that he needed to move on and, and plant a church. He didn't want to travel anymore. He was struggling with his health still and everything like that. Um, and when he left, it sort of became a question of, do we continue? So we sort of said, let's give it a year. And within that year, we sort of said, no, I think we're all, we're each going to, by 2016, I had planted the village here in Nashville, uh, with Travis and, and Heather and others and the band, we were all kind of saying, you know, I think we want to be around more and able to have a little bit more, I don't know, role in our local churches and in our families. There's a season for, for everything. And it's, you can appreciate, it's like, man, that was a good run. Look at the wonderful things that we got to do, um, as a ministry and as a band. And now it's, you know, but then you're in a different season of life. You know, you were totally, you know, probably before then that was probably you were maybe just getting married. We were, we were pretty old, actually. We had mortgages and kids when the band got signed. Okay. So, you know, yeah. but you, you do get into a place where that as the kids get older and it's just, it's yep. a different season of life. And it's okay to say, okay, that was great for that moment. Now what? is next. Totally. And a lot of it was creative too. I mean, I, I, I'm going to use an analogy that might seem odd, but we sort of said we'd rather be the British office than the American office <laughs> where it, Ricky Gervais was like three years in. He's like, I've done all I can do with this. I know what this is. We're going to become a, uh, cliche of ourselves or a you know, this kind of mockery of ourselves if we keep going. And so we did. And so the American office on the other hand had four great seasons and then three really bad seasons. And then they tried to wrap it up and it, it kind of, it limped out of its career the entire time. Right. Man, those are fighting words right there. I know, I, but it did really. I mean, most people would agree that the office limped out. Yeah. Right. I mean, so I, I didn't want to limp out. We were kind of like, man, with the City Harmonic, we've said what we need to say. We bookended it with an album that was about the same thing we started with. And we were like, maybe what we need to do is close the book ourselves rather than just keep going because we can. Kind of taking that pragmatism and saying, no, we don't, we don't want that. We're going to do this because we have a reason to do it. And if we've done all we need to do together, then let's end the band as friends and support each other in moving on to the next thing. And it was Josh, actually the drummer who said, Eli, you need to, this is, this is the right idea. You need to be working on music on your own. And, and that's what you did. And so how did you decide with the solo record, which is called the work volume one, uh, why or how did you decide that you were going to do that independently? Cause you have all these relationships, mm -hmm. you, you know, you were signed to a label with the city harmonic and you've got to know a bunch of people, but instead you're on a funding site and saying, and, and trying to do that on your own. So what, what drove that decision? Yeah. Well, I, I knew that I could and I, so when the City Harmonic was first getting started, we recorded our demo because 
I owned a marketing agency that made a website for a studio owner. Mm. So, so I've, I've always kind of been in this sort of hack it together DIY mentality and just so happened to land in label situations. So having been through all of that and scratched that itch, it kind of came to a point of, do I want, you know, to do a traditional old school record deal again? Um, or do I want to try a season where I do everything I know how to do? And I was sitting down with, uh, uh, rent collectors manager, Steven, he's a, he's a friend. And we were talking about this and he's like, you know, you're going to, you're going to kill your, you're going to kill yourself with questions. If you take a regular deal without doing it without one, like it's just like my own mentality was not going to, it wasn't going to work. Yes. All the what ifs. Yep. All the what ifs. And so I said, okay, well then I'm, I know we do this for clients. I still own a company that we, we run campaigns for in a, in a bunch of different industries. Um, and we're like, you know, I, I know what it takes. I know what the steps are. I know what the money's going to be like. We're going to do it. And so that's what we did. My wife and I talked about it and we prayed about it a lot and then opened up the Indiegogo and that went really well. And yeah. Your goal was $20,000. Where did you land up? We landed up in the mid thirties, which was great. Was that a surprise? Like, were you, were you overwhelmed at like where it landed? How, how callously honest do you want me to be? I want you to be you. Okay. Well, that's hard to do. Um, so my actual goal, and this is maybe useful for folks wanting to crowdfund. Um, I'm just going to, I'm going to open the bag. All right. Do it. My actual goal was 60,000. So I've spent way more than the 30 on getting the record out the door. Right. And the 30, the goal of 20,000 was the kind of first line goal. Um, and the, of the 32,000, 50% was as a result of eight people. Okay. So in other words, and, and of those eight people, four of them I had prearranged before taking Indiegogo live. Okay. So in other words, statistically, people like to back something that's already crossed the finish line. It's like gambling. It's like guaranteed gambling. Right. And that's true of all Kickstarter fundraisers. You see the ones that cross their line, they tend to keep going and they do. It's the, but the ones that don't cross, you know what I mean? Like the, the, the math works out. Well, if you've ever done a building campaign with a church, yep, you kind of do something similar where before you launch it to the, to the, to the people, you have some conversations on the back because yep. it just, it, 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 uh, it, it creates the momentum. Yep, totally. And, and, you know, you kind of are able to manage your risk a little bit. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though I went into that throwing caution to the wind. Yeah. I, I knew, okay, this is what I've already got. I'm going to run it through this channel so that everything's concentrated and the conversation is consistent. Um, and so I had already set up our 20,000 goal is my bare minimum 35, I think was maybe the next one. And then 60 was going to be the next one. If we blew past that. Yeah, I think that's, and I really appreciate you sharing that, uh, because, uh, I think it's, it's super helpful. It's so easy to compare our real lives with everyone else's highlight reel. Yep. And so it's nice to be able to like pull back the curtain. It's one of the things I like doing just, you know, with practical worship and the YouTube channel and everything is, it's just, you know, it started with me making a bunch of videos saying, this is how we do it. I'm not saying it's the right way. It's just, yep. this is how we do it. And here's, and I struggle with this and you might not struggle with this. And, yeah. and when we can pull back the curtain and realize that we're all kind of in the same place, we just have different cards in our hand. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I find it to be more encouraging than it's discouraging. I hope so. I mean, because for me, I think it can seem like magic and the more magical it looks on the other side of the curtain, the more you think there's a wizard of Oz, the less likely you think you can do it. And I just don't believe that to be true. There's a guy named Stephen Brewster that says it's that the creativity is more muscle than magic. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I'm, I'm a kid who grew up with divorced parents in the wrong part of town in a welfare tin can of a house. I, I am not somebody who is, you know, maybe I'm occasionally clever, but my name is dumber. I needed something. <laughs> so I, you know, there's, there's this sense of like, 
for me, it's like, I really do think people can do these things. I think there's a sense of like mystique that we, you know, spiritualize in a bad way, not in a good way. Everything is spiritual as far as I'm concerned. You know, we have to do business in a moral way. We have to relate to each other and we have to be connected to God through all of that and yeah. trust that the spirit's going to guide us in that. But what we don't need to do is use spiritual language about practical things in order to obfuscate what we're actually doing. Yeah, just say what it is. Say what it is. Do, do be transparent in our business practices, be transparent in our fundraising. I mean, yes, I, I didn't know for sure. I hadn't raised 20,000 when we started. So let me be clear about that. I did not already have 20 grand in the bank. What I knew was, Hey, I've got some people. We're a lot of the way there. We're probably going to cross that first goal. If we do great, I can make a record. Yeah. So I was genuinely excited along the way, but we did have goals beyond what the goals that we, the intent was to meet a goal and then announce the next goal. And that's very normal in fundraising. Yeah. So, so that was kind of what we did and, and we spent money doing that. And the reason we needed that money, it sounds crazy is because I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly in terms of what can happen when a record comes out. And if we're going to bother making songs, if we're going to bother making art. And if, if we feel like God has given us this burning passion to go out there and share it with the world, then you're crazy. If you don't, you've got to, you know what, if this is what I'm going to do, if I'm going to write these songs, if I'm going to keep getting emails and DMS of people saying the song, you know, pulled them off the edge of something, then I'm going to need to, I'm going to need to put my money where my mouth is and put my time, my effort, my best thought and my best practice into coming alongside God in making that matter. That's super wise. I love it. I love everything about that. Elias, are you ready for the bonus round? Let's do it. Okay. We're going to do some bonus round questions in three, in two, one, coffee or tea. Oh, both. You can't, you got, you got to pick one. Okay. Coffee in the mornings, tea in the evening. Favorite TV or Netflix show that's not The Office? Oh, how honest can I be? <laughs> you do you. Uh, Breaking Bad is the best television show ever made. It's it's pretty well done. <laughs> it's it's. I, don't, I might get in trouble for saying that. I don't know. Did you listen to the podcast serial? Did you get into that? I I struggled with it. Okay. I had a couple episodes and then I kind of. I, I've uh, N.T. Wright said this once about books, but I think it's true about podcasts. It's like a lot of great media where once I put it down, I couldn't pick it up again. Gotcha. Cat or dog. Dog all day long. In fact, in fact, this scar on my head, I don't know if you can see it. This scar on my head is from a cat when I was one. I've never liked him ever since. Oh, my word. Uh, <laughs> New York or L.A.? Oh, New York. How many guitars is too many guitars? Oh, I'm not a gearhead like that. So I don't know. I have eight or nine in the house, which maybe is a lot. Martin or Taylor? Taylor to play, Martin to hear. Favorite social network? Jeez, I like long. I'm part of the topics group. I, I like long debates. So Facebook. Okay. Favorite book every creative should read. Hmm. Oh, that's a good one. I'm gonna say for musicians, this is your brain on music by Daniel Levitin. Uh, steal like an artist. Okay. We'll put all those in the show notes so you can check that out. If you could give a TED talk, what would it be about? Oh man, here we go. Um, if I could give it, to, I don't know if there'd be an audience for it. What happens in our, the relationship between our brain, our body, our soul and worship. Like, so what happens as a whole person in the whole thing we do together and, and that how essential that is to Christian discipleship and how often overlooked it is. That's fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the bonus round. Good job. Awesome. Well, so we mentioned a little bit in uh, in uh, the work volume one that, you know, the, the main song that's like now on, on radio and things like that is the song called Enough. Mm -hmm. And that that it was kind of on the heels of a conversation that you had with one of the ladies that you know, works in the, the youth of the church that you're at and just wrapping your head around that alarming statistic of just suicide and you know being so common within that area. So that's where the song came from. And so here you are now. How have you seen God use that song 
to maybe encourage, maybe bring hope to people, yeah. to, you know, to to a problem that you saw, not necessarily about suicide, but just but just that feeling of emptiness and hopelessness that led them to make that decision. Well, I think a lot of it was, and it's, we even do this in the church. Identity is such a huge question, and m- maybe more than ever, I don't know. Um, but certainly the degree to which we're all kind of individualistic, if you will, identity is a major question. Who am I? What am I doing? What am I here for? What what makes me matter? And what we were trying to see was that by the by the definition of the American dream, Williamson County, where we live, uh, is winning. You know, I mean, it, it, it has all the markers of what people would identify as if I only had, then I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. If I only had, then I'd be content. And a lot of these kids grow up with those things. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're any happier. And so I've heard from a lot of people and from my own self, I had with some friends, we had intentionally ended a thing that was working. So it's, it's really hard in music and worship. I mean, I know a friend, a worship leader here in Tennessee who has let go of his church and replaced with the younger model. And he's a really successful, well-known, you know, like the guy's awesome. But so there's always this sense of like, you're only as good as your last thing. Your phone only rings when you're doing well. You're, you know, that this kind of stuff that I think in music is really hard. So it was like, it was absolutely out of that conversation. And also me going, I'm dealing with these things. You know, so the song was like aspirational almost for me. It was like, I need to pray this. And I know that these kids that we're, we've got in our church, they need to pray it too. And so does everybody else in our church. And so we wrote the song with that in mind. I had, I've had a couple of pretty cool stories. Um, I had one lady reach out, uh, heard it on the radio. I think she heard it on Way FM, and she said that they adopted a boy uh, who they had met at an orphanage in uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe. And his parents, he's, he's an orphan. His parents were gone, um, and he's older now. He's a teenager, um, but he he had come over and he had sort of this kind of oppositional defiance thing going on from being adopted and moved across the world and all this stuff. And they were just really trying to help and and you know help this kid. Um, and she was in this terrible cycle of shaming herself and guilting herself for not being enough of a mom to this kid. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and so she wrote me to say like, man, I had this moment where I realized like, I, I don't actually, ha-, and this is the thing, there's this message in our culture of like, you are enough. And to me, I know it means well, but it sounds like self-sufficiency on steroids. Mm. It sounds like the idea that you have to be enough, you know, you don't need other things to be good or valuable, but the truth is most people are just dissatisfied with that. And it's because we need Jesus. So for me, I look at that and I hear that lady's story of saying, I don't have to be enough for this boy. I can't be enough for this boy. No one needs to depend on me that much. I need to love this boy, put one foot in front of the other and share them, share Christ with them and let Jesus be enough. Cause if otherwise my Jesus is too small and I'm taking his job. It takes some of the pressure off. Oh yeah, totally. And I think our insistence that in our culture, you have to be enough in and of yourself. That's that's wrong. It's wrong headed. I mean, dissatisfaction has been one of the human drivers through all of human history. Why is that? You know, and it, and it's because we really do need Jesus to be whole. We have sin in the world. We are broken. We live in a broken world. And without Christ, we're going to be spinning our wheels trying to solve that problem ourselves. Yeah. Was it an easy song to write? No, no, no. We, I mean, we wrote it quickly. We wrote it in a day. Um, but it's a, well, I sometimes say that there are songs that, uh, you work on for a long time. And there are songs that though they be quick, they work on you for a long time. It's more of the second than the first. How so? Uh, I'm, I still wouldn't say that I'm living it out. You know, I'm, I'm, you want to talk about irony. I'm looking at how the Facebook ads for a song that says, Jesus, you are enough are doing, you know, like that's. I'm talking to a radio promoter about whether it's working. You know, I mean, it, 
it, it, not to say, I mean, some of that is necessary stuff you have to do to share the song with people. Cause I believe in the message, you know? Um, but it is sort of a constant head check of like, Hey, am I doing this for the right reasons? And I believe I am, but it, but you have to ask the question so many times have to ask the question. I think, I think we as pastors do that all the time. I, mm-hmm. I know I do that with everything I do on YouTube and things like that. Cause it's, it's a promotion thing. And, and we just, any, anything where we're kind of, I don't know, handing something over to people that they didn't necessarily ask for. That's a weird way to say it. But yep. um, but you, you just have to ask yourself the question day after day, am I doing, am I am I leading the worship ministry at my church for the right reasons? Mm-hmm. And you ask the question and you, and you hope that the answer is yes. And But you, day after day, you ask the question over and over and over. Totally, totally. And so that's that's what I mean. I mean, it's, it's a song where I, some days am pretty content with, my life and what God is doing and some days I'm not and that's reality we have a guy that serves on our media team at church named Rob one day he sent me a text telling me to check out the song Enough by Elias Dummer now Rob is this burly guy with a big black beard generally wears flannel and he's not really one that makes a lot of song suggestions so when he does if you're smart you pay attention. So I pulled it up on Spotify and I recognized the chorus from the radio, but I started paying attention to the lyrics of the verses. And I love songs that bring into light the lies that we sometimes believe about ourselves and corrects them with the truth. And this lyric is so beautifully crafted in this way. I am not what I make. I am who you have made me to be. I am not what I've done. I'm loved unconditionally. We plan our sets several weeks in advance, but needless to say, we are scheduled to introduce this song to our church a week from this Sunday, and I'm really looking forward to it. If you want to brush up on the creative works of Elias Dummer, both the solo project and also the City Harmonic, I'm going to put some links to some YouTube videos in the show notes. Just go to practicalworshiplog.com slash podcast 16, and you'll find them there. And Speaking of YouTube, something I've always been intrigued about in leading a worship band is the idea of having a music director as part of the band. Someone that is a part of the band on stage with a microphone that only goes to the band's in-ears and helps to lead the band and support the worship leader. And I understood the basic idea of having this position as part of the worship band, like at a general sense. But I'd never been in a situation where I've experienced it for myself knew any of the details. So I had a chance to sit down with a guy named Tracy Stingley, and he's the music director for the worship band at Willow Creek Community Church in the Chicagoland area. And we recorded a YouTube video together that seeks to answer the question, does your worship band need a music director? If you haven't seen that video yet, you can check it out at youtube.com slash practical worship. If you made it this far into the podcast, hey, do this. Take a screenshot right now and share it on social media. I always love seeing where you guys are listening to the show from and what you're doing while you're listening to it. And when you share it, tag me in it using Dave Dolphin OK. This has been the Practical Worship Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dave Dolphin, and let's do this again next month.